0: Welcome back to the Metaverse podcast. This week, we have Kayvon Sadeghi, co-founder and CEO of FunctionLand. Welcome, Kayvon. Thank you so much for
1: having me, Jamie. Pleasure to be at home.
0: So you are a big open source advocate and FunctionLand is really an expression of that, and we'll talk about your background in the context of open source. Land is replacing cloud storage and the service subscription economy by introducing a new category of products called blockchain attached storage, and we'll ask you to unpack that for us a little bit later. But effectively, it creates value by auto-minting crypto, for users and allocating a share of those profits and revenues to developers it's a kind of win-win solution so there's several reasons why i've got you on the show firstly we've been working with you very extensively here at outlier through our accelerator um and you are i think our first hardware play of course there is a software protocol aspect to it but there's also a hardware component to it And actually, you were the first, but you're definitely uh, not the last. There are now several more coming through the program. And I think it's really representative of something I'm loosely calling sovereign technology, sovereign hardware, i.e. hardware that allows the average person to kind of enter the open metaverse, earn an income through crypto, um, and effectively protect that income from all the awful kind of stuff that's going on um, in the macro economy. Um and so functional land and the functional land network, the Fula network enables this kind of secured resource sharing amongst users um you are backed by our Avengers but also protocol labs, filecoin Definity crust, and several others and so I'm really excited to kind of get into you know why functional land you know what you think that represents as a step change in effectively the monetization of open source. But before we do that, let's, let's go into your background. How did you get here?
1: Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, so getting into open source, that started uh, right after my graduation from Southampton, University of Southampton. I was a student uh, of Artificial Intelligence Masters there. And right after my graduation, I was looking for a job in a niche subject called AGI, and the only place on earth that I could find a work like paying work for that line of work was Hong Kong. So I went to Hong Kong. I, went, I worked with Ben Gortzel uh, on the OpenCog project, and that that work was my entry to open source. So this is what. 2012.
0: Uh, Just tell us what AGI is for those that don't know.
1: Sure. Uh, Artificial general intelligence is the pursuit of creating computer algorithms that solve general problems, not specific ones in the field of AI, artificial intelligence. So you have your phone camera identifying your face. That's narrow AI. That's an AI that can solve a very specific problem identifying your face then there's AGI, uh, how can a, a, an AI agent on its own find out things about the world, make sense of things and define its own goals?
0: And um, I think people in the crypto community anyway will know Ben Goetzel, um through both, the is it Sophia, the robot that he, that he did? I'm pretty sure I interviewed or got interviewed by Sophia on stage at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's Sophia robot and the Singularity Net. Blockchain. There you go. Exactly.
0: All right. Sorry to interrupt. Carry on. <laughs> no worries,
1: Sure. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. My first day at Hong Kong, new city, new language, new surrounding, and new operating system. Like, I was a Windows Microsoft guy, I, like, programming. I was doing C sharp on my university day. So, here I was uh, at a lab in Hong Kong, sitting at the Linux machine, which felt weird and also uh, having to do Python coding, which is an open source language, and I have a week to deliver stuff. So it was a really fun experience. Uh, (laughs) I I mean, it it made uh, me, who I am, uh, the true open source believer because of the fruit of that work, specifically. You would see your work, instead of it being behind the closed door, out in the world for everyone to see and touch and change. And it was a great paradigm shift. And there's this famous saying that software is eating the world. Well, open source is
0: eating eating software. So um, that was my introduction to open source. Right. And then, of course, it didn't stop there. Um, You had kind of several different things, working as an engineer, as an architect, technical director, um, all generally within that related feel, right? And also kind of cloud computing, Uh, and eventually uh, the uh, W3C as a chair on the kind of functional knowledge graph community group. So could you talk us through, I guess, some of the other relevant roles that you've had that kind of built up or equipped you to kind of be doing what you're doing now at FunctionLand? Sure, yeah.
1: Uh, So uh, once you go open source, the, the way I did, you most likely won't come back, and that was the case for me. Like even in work that I was doing that was proprietary and we couldn't disclose it, I would find ways to uh, open source parts and bits of it. Like So for example, I remember I was creating this health tech website knowledge base and I was working to create this graph uh, representation of that knowledge base there. A framework that I open source just because it's uh, it, it makes sense to uh, decouple your code and start Creating open source Lego pieces out of it and just share it with the world and get feedback, get improvements on that. And that became the uh, essence of function land. Um, I mean, uh, I've been, as you mentioned, in the cloud industry uh, back then, we thought it was very cool and it was very cool. Like I remember the days that uh, deploying a service, deploying your code was such a headache in like those local, local data centers. So there came things like OpenStack where you could create your own cloud in your own infrastructure and get all those cool things that come with cloud high availability, replication, uh reliable deployments. So those, those were like uh, so it was infrastructure as a service, platform as a service. And I was I, I was at the time trying to build on those stacks for the work that I was doing. And then uh during the past 10 years, uh, don't be evil became evil. And that's made way for us to think hard from the first principles, how we can change it. in the scene of blockchain and Web3 technologies, and that gave us Function Lab.
0: And so Function Lab was born in January, 2021. You're obviously the CEO, but you're a co-founder, there are several other co-founders. And I guess if we start off at a high level. The kind of macro problem as somebody that's spent over a decade in open source now was how you directly monetize open source right so yes there's lots of ways people have built businesses on top of open source um, but there's not necessarily been a way to directly monetize open source if you're a contributor right um it's generally just been seen as a public good um so that's kind of on the developer side, and I know that the advent of kind of crypto and, and blockchain has enabled kind of the infrastructure and code, but also the incentive mechanisms. And um, and on the other hand, you have the users where there's kind of this mission at function land to, to take back control from big tech. So could you just talk us through those both ends of the problem, the problem statement? Sure. So open source.
1: Uh, there is monetization for open source in a very specific segment and that's dev tools so uh, open source dev tools have solved the funding problem but open source monetization for end user applications has remained unsolved so the way that it's solved on the dev side is the industry of fear so you create this cool dev tool that's very usable and very uh, collaborative and very novel. then go you go out and create a business around it and sell to enterprises who have developers working for them using those tools. so that's 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 an improvement already there over the uh, advertising model and subscription model of like eighteenth century but still suboptimal, right? So there's still, you're relying on a specific segment and specific uh, audience type, developers, and it kind of works. It's called open core model, but it doesn't bridge to end user applications. So you don't go on your app store or Google play store and see uh, the apps that are built by an open source community. And um, mostly what you see is apps from big tech, the ones that survive, right? And when you see that the open source apps, they are flooded with uh, ads, like subscriptions, there's higher tiers. And there's a reason for that. There is a reason uh, that doesn't exist in the DevTools world. And the reason is that developers, the users of DevTools, they have their own server and their laptop, they boot up the tooling required and they can start working from there with their laptop being their server. That same doesn't translate to end-user application because there is no server there. You're still renting from the cloud. We call it the rental web problem. And when, as a developer, when you, when you want to create a user-facing app, you have this huge AWS bills that you need to pay monthly. So you are left with no choice but to make, to compromise on the user experience and introduce ads and subscription. So what function land does is it spins that problem on its head. It says, yeah, let's give users servers. And that's what box is.
0: So as I said, there's there's different components to what you built, the stack. There's a the hardware component, there's kind of the protocol and dev tool component. Now Uh, You joined, so at Outlier, we run different accelerator programs with different protocol ecosystems, and and you came through on the Filecoin IPFS ecosystem, Um, and they've been a key partner and investor in you. So I know protocol labs are very actively involved. Maybe we kind of start there before we go into all the other things that you're going to be able to do. So if you could talk us through the hardware, like what it does obviously there's the kind of be, going to be the first version first iteration um and how that might then interact with something like filecoin and ipfs yep so the
1: hardware is there to uh, provide the function right so it's your land and it provides you function that's our company's name but the hardware is called box and uh, it's it provides uh, specific functions. It, acts as your personal server, so you don't. You no longer need to rent out from anyone. You have your own hardware that supports every computational and storage need that you might have. And then you're accompanied by this fuller network around it where you get cloud-like features like real, reliable backups, high availability, uh, real-time collaboration and sharing. Uh, that's all enabled by this important a hardware being owned by you and there's no way around it. like the way we see it as long as there is uh, still people renting you uh renting out the hardware to you you will still end up paying and there's no way around it uh that we can see
0: so, so been, let's just talk about the dimensions of this thing because I, I, people might be imagining this huge thing in the corner of their room can you talk about the dimensions of it the current price point that you're thinking of you know this is this is not this is meant for mainstream users right in a home as well as a workplace it's not it's not necessarily meant as something that only an it manager would buy right that that's
1: that's the barrier to entry that we need to break right we need to uh, make hardware that's usable by, by moms and pops because currently, I mean, the web three experience is like, install this web extension. And if you want to talk to me, authorize it on, on that wallet on uh, web, web extension. And that's not something that you can bridge to mainstream. That's not the user experience that they can, uh, work with. But we know what that user experience is. We know the cloud services and apps on the cloud how convenient they are we need to match that convenience certainly it's it's a very very small device it's about the si- side of an a4 paper to give you perspective uh, the smaller side uh, that's the dimensions it's a cubic a cubic in dimension it's the, the setup of it is similar to any IOT device that you might own so if you ever owned an Apple TV or like a vacuum robot, the setup is very similar. You plug it in, uh, connect it to, you, to an app on your phone, and that app becomes your remote control, and you don't need to interact with buttons and stuff. Everything fo- follows on Yeah,
0: And it's literally plugging it into a wall, connecting it to the Wi-Fi, connecting to the app, and then that's it, and then you can unlock all that functionality, right? Exactly. Okay, so that's the hardware piece. Um, and, and do you know roughly what you're going to be retailing that app? so the msrp for when it when the
1: current form factor the box XL hits the shelves is uh 13.99 and that's because it's a very premium device with many functionalities so 1399
0: right yes yeah okay dollars dollars usd okay and
1: that's that's because it comes with the docking station, with the expansion with towers, but that's the Excel tier. So we also have the more approachable and affordable lights tier, uh, the MSRP for that is $400. And it's, it's, it's the same tower, the fuller tower that comes on XL. It's just standalone, and it's more affordable, and later down the road can be upgraded to the bigger tier.
0: Right. And assume, uh, I'm assuming, you know, over time with more volume, the cost of these come down significantly. Um, so, let's, so, let's, so that's a hardware device, right? And um, so let's talk then about the, the kind of dev tools that make, that, that allow developers to make different integrations, to allow different protocols to unlock the functionality of the tower. Um, and then also, presumably, build applications. So let's start start at the protocol side. Maybe let's start with protocol labs and IPFS, because as I said, I know they've been a, a big partner of yours. What problems, what does it enable you to do with, the, with those protocols? And what problems does it address in performance or availability, et cetera?
1: What protocol labs has built is the combination of Many many years of research in the in in the distributed system industry, and it shows it's it's the the most widely used uh, protocol for data sharing on the Web three stack currently out there because it's been thought through. It's very capable and it's very resilient. So what IPFS specifically does is that it allows people to uh, share files using of very simple primitives, like programming primitives, that are P2P, that are not centralized. There is no central control over who passes what to whom. And these primitives are then later used, can, can be used for exiting those data silos that we have seen. Like just recently, Jack Lewis has said that he feels uh, responsible for making identity limited to big corporations. Yeah, that's that's not something that we want to do all over again in Web3. And protocols essentially are a way of agreeing on how our data is transmitted from one place to another without introducing lock-ins there. And Protocol Labs is a pioneer in that. And we are building on the shoulder of giants. We are using, so inside the box, uh, there is this, uh, implementation of uh, our own protocols by protocols made by protocol apps. So inside the box, you have LibP2P, you have IPFS. But outside the box, you have this new connection from your box to your mobile device, again, through LibP2P, which replaces HTTP in our
0: paradigm. So that means that you can then stream data from your mobile phone via the app, into the device and have that stored in a peer-to-peer way. It also means presumably you can earn an income from making your storage available to the network.
1: Exactly. So the point is we've had BitTorrent for long, right? And there is, uh, if, if it, it, just to give you an analog with, with BitTorrent, uh, the biggest problem with BitTorrent is seeders will stop seeding and you have what's, what's called leachers and uh, they just come and download and go. So what we have is the incentive in the Fuller network to keep for people to keep seeding and this seeding this time is not public data. It's your private data. So it's your neighbor keeping a backup of your files and keeping it there because your neighbor is being compensated. They are earning daily rewards for just backing up your files and vice versa. So you provide the same service to your neighbors and hence it becomes a not a pain problem again because you're not a user here you're also a provider. We want to uh, retire the word user because it's from the drug industry and we want to evolve to owners in web3
0: and when you say neighbor I, I know you mean that in a literal sense right in a local sense um, and, and this has been this offers a key potential upgrade to the performance of things like protocol labs and IPFS as a network, should it go mainstream? Can you talk us through that specifically?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, many blockchain deployments rightfully have been accused of being centralized. So it was, what, July last year that China banned Bitcoin for the 100th time. And it was like, what, half of the Bitcoin hash rate went went to the nowhere. And it was a, a grim day because do we as is our like flagship of is flagship of decentralization really that centralized? Is it all happening in one place? So we have the same problem everywhere and um, in in any network, right? So ma- many blockchains are uh, accused of being uh, ran on web web two infra on AWS. And again, this is why we need to solve it from first principle. You you should see people in the street, like average people, being node operators, not only limited to geeks even. That would be decentralized. IPFS has the same problem. IPFS, many deployments of certain files are limited geographically, and what we do in IPFS in our uh, collaboration with the uh, IPFS team and in our own protocol designs, we're creating this concept of local pools, as you said, literal neighbors, to create these IPFS pools together and hence solve the latency that IPFS is currently facing. Because the tech is solid, it's very robust, and it's very, uh, there, there's no latency when you have IPFS deployments, say, in the same ISP. The problem is when it, they need to. Travel through the greatest firewall that humanity has built.
0: Yeah. And so, effectively, you know, should that, these these local networks will effectively just perform better than how the current protocols are structured and then potentially even faster than cloud, Um, you know, the kind of more centralized Web 2.0 cloud um, economy. So, but that's just one protocol, right? That's just almost the. the kind of first one that you've gone to, but I know you're also looking at dev tooling around not just Filecoin, but the graph, QDOS and Outlier, another Outlier portfolio company focused on compute uh, to Filecoin storage. Could you talk us through some of the other dev tooling that's been made, other protocol integrations, and I know naturally, given your background, AI is on the roadmap as well.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. So uh, we want to... Uh, Offer the developers the same tool sets that they need to build apps. And they are currently getting from the centralized infra providers out in the world. So we need to create web three alternatives of those, right? And IPFS, for example, is, is is interplanetary file system. So we have a way to save files in a distributed fashion. What we don't have alternative for is the most important one, and that's HTTP. HTTP is so old, and it's time for us to explore how we can uh, create alternatives to HTTP, especially when we want to do P2P, peer-to-peer. And that's where our dev protocols come in as a first try on replacing HTTP in that sense, the connection between your mobile device and your server. Uh, And there we have three protocols, where we have file protocol which essentially a standard for, uh, like, how do we communicate communicate through this line together, transmit data, and like down the road on the receiving end, it's not uh, contingent on the implementation. So, in our implementation, we have IPFS in the box, but there's no nothing preventing uh, this uh, interface to be implemented in another infra. So, we can see the down the road, even as uh, something as Crazy is a BitTorrent implementation for file protocol. So what file protocol does? It just says how your phone talks to your personal server. We have file protocol. Then we have graph protocol. So graph protocol is for data persistence, uh, not files. Like things think think of them as metadata. Like when you have a picture, when you have an album in in your in your photo gallery, that's that's. Metadata that's accompanying data by that, but it's not file. So, JSON files. Uh, and Graph Protocol is GraphQL uh, interface on top of p 2 p not HTTP. So, it can be deployed in this sense. And as you mentioned, next year, with collaboration with uh, our friends uh, and uh, our investors, Protocol Labs will be exploring AI Protocol. And what AI Protocol does is distributed compute, and uh, all the way to cool things that happen in the deep learning space, like uh, computation graphs, what powers uh, the language models of the world, what what empowers things that are named open AI, but, but are anything but open.
0: And so effectively, by having one of these devices in your room, kind of quietly doing its thing, you can be contributing to these peer to peer systems storage compute this graph um you can be earning an income each of those presumably will be giving you effectively mining um depending on the network configuration um but either way, you're generating a yield and income um from making those that functionality in that box available to the network that happens automatically. you don't need to you know think it through and you know presumably. Over time, you know, that's kind of building you a, a nice little piggy bank of, of, of crypto and you can then determine what you do with it, presumably th- through some kind of app. And I believe that this could, whilst, say, Helium, which is obviously um, a, a, a kind of a peer in your space, um, has its own hardware, in theory, you could also run he- the Helium network on this device, right? Correct. So um, the
1: device... Box. It doesn't have our branding. There is no attachment to the brand function land from box. We from the beginning, beginning we wanted it to be a form factor, and that's we wanted it to be not a monopoly and a platform for everyone to join and create towers for. So you can have one tower per blockchain, and then by physical proximity. Then comes, uh, these software integrations that make this beautiful experience from the integration between all these cool technologies. So yes, one of the partners, uh, potential partners that's currently taking a look at our Indiegogo campaign is Helium to see what the appetite is there. So they can come and build uh, helium towers, made potentially, and on the box form factor, which is not owned by us. It's
0: open public good. Right. I think Helium is uh, Wi Fi, right? So you're effectively you're sharing bandwidth network. Right. So that, that's kind of all the protocols and stuff. Then also, you can build applications, and anybody can do these, right? I know you're building some in house. So it's kind of, it comes by default with some pre installs. Um, but again, I'm assuming that the application marketplace is open. I don't know to what extent it's curated. Um, but could you talk us through some of the, the applications that you built as, as pre-install um, and then also how you're going to manage third-party apps?
1: So the applications that we built in-house, uh, we are currently have a working uh, MVP of the Photos app. So this is the uh, replacement for the photo services from Apple and Google that is powered by your Box device. And we are already, we also have in, in the pipeline two apps by the time that Box ships. We have a password manager app and an alternative for Dropbox or Google Drive. Uh, it, it will this time around with, with Box infra in development. But the beauty of it is when we get the ecosystem funds to empower this next generation of open source developers to come and build for, uh, on Web3 tech. And that's really when, when we will see this take off, uh, because the promise that we're giving these developers is, yeah, you don't need to go bankrupt to create an app and publish it on, uh, for, for mobile devices. You can earn a constant
0: uh, income revenue from doing so. And, and how will you curate? I mean, can anybody install any application? You, you don't control or curate that. Exactly.
1: There's no curation in Web3. Otherwise, it would be Web2. At so, uh, uh, the, the web device was, level, well,
0: right? So anybody can put whatever they want on it. Well, yeah. I
1: mean, we, we, we have, on, on the device level, that they can go and edit the code because it's open for them to, to touch it. But apps are not installed on the device. They don't go inside box. And what happens is apps are installed on your phone and your phone talks with data protocols, with graph protocol to your box. And that's not something that people can hack because it's it's a spec that is uh, P2P encryption technologies that power, say, Ethereum, are deployed there. So the only uh, bad actors in space could be people who create malicious app. And we, we don't have any creation. I mean, currently, the way you download an app is through uh Google and um, App Store Google Google Play Store and App Store they, those are already walled gardens but down the road we don't have any cur- curation so if you partner off with the marketplace play uh like an app marketplace the way the dao way of doing that is to have auditors so you when you download an app you can see that this has been audited by these three blockchain projects then you will have uh the confidence to download it
0: yeah cuz i i guess You know, that's my big concern, right? So I'm, like you, a big advocate for sovereign tech. Sovereignty generally, right? I believe in a sovereignty of the individual, sovereignty of wealth, sovereignty of data. But I do sometimes ask, like, is the average person, does the average person want sovereignty? And are they ready for it? Because, of course, it comes with a responsibility. Ultimately, the responsibility is on the end user as to what apps they do and they don't download. So... Do you think through mechanisms like you just mentioned there, we can remove the risk of sovereignty to the extent that it doesn't preclude the majority of people? Or do you still think this is, a, is, is good, always going to be a kind of technical barrier?
1: I think uh, for us in the Web3 industry, there are many lessons to be learned actually from the big tech there because they create amazing user experiences. And that's, that should be the cornerstone of everything that we do too, right? We shouldn't start from tech. We should start from like just trying to uh, think how the end user will approach this product that I'm building and build it from there and uh, make it as convenient as possible. And I don't uh, see that risk that you mentioning, Jamie, because of how Web2 evolved, right? I remember my mom having a very hard time uh, turning on the Windows device and working with all those Windows, like the cross. So it took her, like, forever to learn how to work with Windows 98, right? But then, came along these uh, mobile devices experiences, this native experiences with your fingers, with, with visuals. And these are like, now that you look at it, these are like 10 times harder than closing and opening a window in Windows 98. So how come my mom is on Instagram 24 seven? I think it's built up in a natural way uh, that comes natural to people. And the genius in designing those experiences that make it uh, essentially limitless. So that would be my too.
0: I mean, so an extension of my question is, who does customer service? So let's say I've got this box and I've got various apps and I've got some kind of integrations going with various protocols. Like if something stops working, who do I... Firstly, how do I identify the problem and identify who, who I then speak to? Is it a protocol problem? Is it an app problem? Is it a hardware problem?
1: Sure. We need, we, we, we need not to look further other than what exists already in the world. So we have these, as I said, dev tools that have gone through these waves. So say something like a dev, dev tool framework like React. Who's doing customer service for React? As a developer, I I will face problems. I still need customer service. The the product that I'm getting is React. Who's doing that customer service? And the answer in that world is my peers. We have this, we've turned the customer service problem to a social interaction mechanism. So we just chill out in in communities, stack overflows of the world and GitHub's of the world. And we... Exchange ideas. It's not even, we don't even call it customer service. Uh, it's like, hey, I hit this wall. And the other guy will say, ah, I hit the same wall a month ago. Here's how, 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 how I, I resolved it. So it's going to be social as opposed to corporational
0: uh, customer service that we currently have. Understood. And, um, and then finally, you've chosen, at least in a Web3 context, quite a novel go to market so rather than launching a token first and then you know rolling out a product a hardware product um you've chosen to go through a more kind of traditional route of of crowdfunding can you talk us through that decision and i know um you've had some difficulty in the platform as well right i think you went with kickstarter originally and were blocked because you were Doomed a mining operation. And um, in the end, you went with Indiegogo. So, can you talk us through that decisioning? Yeah.
1: And the last 24 hours before going live on Kickstarter, we've been informed that you cannot go live. So, that was a very joyful day. I bet, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, we want to create this hardware category, right? Blockchain attached storage. This is the new cat, a, a new. Hardware category that's been not been explored before, and we we cannot like uh, go against the stream in everything as like uh, players in Web three. We cannot disrupt the supply chain industry as well as like creating a software and protocol and everything. So uh, we need to find creative ways to play with the traditional markets there. So you don't see uh, people like buying uh, blockchain devices from like a shop at a mall. The reason is uh, they have the specific steps, checkpoints, that a product needs to conquer before it reaches a shelf in the store. Um, and that's what we're doing with the uh, crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. So we are showing the big guys that, hey, there's appetite at these prices, these price points for a sovereign hardware for this new category. And with that experiment, with the results of that experiment there, we will we will now go and say, oh, now the big name in the storage world, big name in the GPU world, would you come partner up with us? So we uh, take this product to the market, this already validated one. That's one aspect. The other aspect is for for functional efforts, effort, we, we don't want to gimmicky. We're we here for the long run. We don't mind a MER market. So we we just uh, wanted to do it proper. And the proper way of doing it is to create a grassroots community around everything, around the token, around the network, around the protocols, and in our case, around the hardware.
0: Yeah. And I guess, well, I know more because we've been involved in kind of helping you work through that decisioning that you also wanted to prove that there was mainstream demand for this, right? It wasn't just something that people would speculatively participate in because there was some token that might pump. You wanted to prove that putting any token aside um, that people would want the hardware device, that the message resonates. Um, um, So look, I I think it's a novel approach for the space. Um, I think it's um, coming from the right place and you know i'm personally very excited about getting my tower on my desk um you haven't actually told me when 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 it arrives yet so i'm getting uh, i'm getting anxious um but what i will say is you know i don't know when this goes out relative to what's going on in the crowdfunding campaign so i'll say good luck um but i'm sure it's going to be a great success and and really looking forward to um, helping you do more partnerships with this, right? Because, again, one of the great things about Outlier and this kind of Open Metaverse OS is that we're working with lots of protocols. Um, we're bringing lots of new protocols to market. And, of course, we hope many of them to kind of come through on the function lane tower. So um, really excited about what the future holds.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Great talking to you, as always. And uh, I will just shamelessly say, uh, the Indiegogo campaign will be live for the next 25 days. And if you like what you heard, there is, uh, you can go
0: and check it out. Great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Cheers. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.